0: Thank you. Good morning. Okay, class social's gone. Profits have come. If you don't have a lesson, raise your hand and we'll get you one. We're going to, uh, those of you who've been, uh, all right, we've got down here a need. Anybody else a lesson? Um, We're going to throw a little curveball into what we're doing here. If we continued to chart through the Bible, the Old Testament, the way we've been going, today we would hit the first of the minor prophets in order, which would be Hosea. But we're not going to do Hosea today. We're going to do Joel and Amos. I've come up with an excuse for this. I've also got the real explanation. Which one would you like? Okay, you get both. The excuse is, we're going to go through the Minor Prophets in a likely order in which they were written. The real explanation is, next Sunday we have Joel Chernov coming, and he will be singing a song out of Hosea and Micah. And so by making this change, we're able to teach what he sings. And it seems to make more sense that way. So um, there's the truth, and there's also the explanation uh, um, for what it's worth. I had to come up with some excuse to change things around. So today we're going to look at Joel and Amos. Um, these are the first two of the minor prophets. And uh, those of you who may be visiting our class, uh, this is a class that we're calling Biblical Literacy. Our goal in this class is to look at the Bible, go through the Bible, and try and answer the questions of what do we need to know? What are the core basics Uh, so that we can be biblically literate people. This includes the questions of where did these things come from, why are they in the Bible, who decided they belong in the Bible, and things of that nature. We have made it through over the last year now, uh, the Old Testament. We're down to the final 12 books of the Old Testament. They're called the Minor Prophets. After that, we'll spend uh, probably two to three weeks in the Apocrypha, which you'd find in a Catholic Bible, but not in most Protestant Bibles and then we will launch into the New Testament. So, with that, um, let's begin. Who are the minor prophets? That's our first question. Well, they are not guys who made a living um, by digging ore. That would be the minor, M-I-N-E-R, prophets. Uh-huh. They... It's a legitimate question. The Minor Prophets are 12 books written by these prophet guys in Old Testament times that were all put onto one scroll. So in the Hebrew temple um, or a synagogue, you would pull out, for example, you could pull out the scroll of Esther. You could pull out the scroll of uh, uh, the Psalms. But you would not pull out the scroll of Joel. If you did, it wouldn't be much of a scroll. Because it's pretty short. All 12 of the minor prophets were fit onto one Hebrew scroll. And uh, um, if we go back and read the writings of a guy named Jesus Ben Sirach, uh, Ben being the Aramaic word for son, so Jesus the son of Sirach, he wrote a book that's also it's called Sirach, it's in the Apocrypha, it's also called Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, but Ecclesiasticus. And if you go into this book, which was written about 180 years before the birth of Christ, you would read in uh, chapter 49, verse 10, Of the twelve prophets let the memorial be blessed, let their bones flourish again out of their place, for they comforted Jacob and delivered them by assured hope. Uh, So at least 180 years before Christ, the minor prophets were being called the twelve prophets because they were all in one scroll. Um, They were not called the minor prophets by anyone. Uh, that I can find at least, until Augustine, St. Augustine, who wrote in, uh, uh, he was born like 350 or so AD and died 420 or so AD, but he wrote in about the 400s a book called The City of God, and uh, he called them, referenced them as the minor prophets, not in the sense of them being a lesser prophet, like Ezekiel, he's a real prophet, but Joel, he's a minor prophet, you know, like So-and-so's a major league prophet, and he's a minor league prophet. It's not that they're of lesser importance, that they were called or are called minor prophets. It's that they're smaller. You read Ezekiel, you're in for a long chore. You read Joel, you're over in about five minutes. And so it's it's a reference more to their size than it is to them being of any kind of lesser importance or anything like that. Um, What is the order that the books are in, and why are they in that order? Uh, I've been asked to deal with that in this class by uh, uh, one of the lawyers who, who actually proofreads and, and helps put my lessons into some kind of an order. And I was able to honestly answer the question, nobody knows why they're in this order. Uh, there are suspicions. One of the suspicions is that they originally in the Hebrew were put into the order they're put into... Because it's a basic chronological order, with Hosea being stuck in first because it's the longest. So you get it kind of out of the way and then go in chronological order. Uh, Nobody really knows. Um, uh, I'm not able to give you a definitive answer. This is the order in which they're put onto a Hebrew scroll. The Dead Sea Scrolls, as they've been unearthed, confirm the same order. So this order's been around uh, for a long time. Um, When were these books written? Well, they span quite an an age group, but as we go through when they were written, it'll also remind us what, what books are in the Minor Prophets. The book of Joel, which we're going to look at this morning, was written anywhere from 800 years before Christ to 400 years before Christ. There's nothing within the book that really tells us specifically when it was written. So we have to kind of assess it based upon things we read about in the book. Um, the book of Amos, which is the second one we'll deal with today, was written probably in the area of about 760 B.C. Um, Micah was written after that uh, in the 750 range B.C. The book of Hosea was written somewhere around either 753, where the prophecies seemed to start, to 722 B.C., where they seem to end. Um, Jonah, uh, you remember Jonah and the whale? <clears throat> Our big fish, um, Jonah. We don't know when Jonah was written. Uh, there are different scholars that have reasons to believe it's as early as about seven thirty ish. Other scholars believe it's as late as about four fifty ish. Zephaniah, six hundred and thirty ish. We can cruise through these: Habakkuk, Nahum, Obadiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, which is uh, the last book in our Old Testament. Now, nowhere in here is the book of Hezekiah. Okay. There is no book of Hezekiah. It was a prank that we used to do when we were in school. We would go to an adult Bible class and we would ask this, the adults to turn to the book of Hezekiah, the second chapter, the fourth verse, and we would watch to see how many people would open their Bible. It sounds like it should be in there. It's not in there. You can pull the prank on your friends. It's guaranteed to win you uh, no new friends. Um, <laughs> Now, with that as some background information behind the Minor Prophets, let's look at the book of Joel. This is not going to be a lengthy look, but Joel was written somewhere between 800 and 400 B.C. There are two parts to the book. The first half deals with a plague of locusts, and that's uh, chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 27. Then chapter 2, 28, through the end of the book at the end of 3, deals with um, a prophetic Day of the Lord, when uh, um, God's Spirit would be poured out upon people. Um, Joel is an interesting book for a number of reasons, and I'm not sure what I have on the PowerPoint. Ah, yeah, this is worth putting up. Um, There is similar language to Joel found in Ezekiel, Isaiah, Micah, and Amos. And so that's one of the reasons scholars like to date Joel late, because they say Joel must have relied upon Ezekiel and Isaiah and Amos and Micah. Well, there's no reason to say that it wasn't the other way around. There's also no reason to say that there wasn't common language being used that didn't necessarily rely upon everyone else. Let me give you an illustration. If you were to pick up a book, and it had no reference to when it was written, but it was just a dialogue between two people, And one person says to the other, that's groovy. How many of you would think that that book was written before 1776 when America was a country? The odds are it's not. The odds are it came out sometime after the mid-60s when things became groovy. And the odds are it's probably not that recent because things aren't that groovy anymore. <laughs> so you can kind of put it into the groovy era, okay? By the same token, if we were to pick up something and read it and it said, uh, in all seriousness, thou hast uh, seen fit to performeth certain chores, we could tell by that language that either it was written by someone who's lived in a cave for the last couple hundred years, or it was written some time ago because the language seems to fit an earlier pattern of speech than, in English than it does today. You read Shakespeare, you do not confuse Shakespeare for something just written. I mean, I, I'm, 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 I'm educated, I'm fairly bright at least. I read Shakespeare and I have a hard time understanding it. And it's a chore. You sit there and you think, what on earth? You know, Gracie came home one day just real excited. She said, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? She said, Do you know what that really means? It doesn't mean, Where are you? It means, Why are you a Romeo? Uh, uh, or whatever the family name was uh, Montague or a Capulet or something. Some, yeah, Why are you in that family? And she said, didn't you always think wherefore art thou means where are you? And I mean, it's hard to understand. So scholars can take the language of a book like Joel and try to address, well, it must fit in this era. But you, you run a little risk when you start saying, well, Joel talks about, for example, the day of the Lord. And that language was used by, for example, Micah. So it must have come after Micah. Well, you don't know that. It could have come before Micah, and Micah was borrowing it from Joel. Or it could have been something that was just really groovy back then that a lot of people were talking about all over the place. It doesn't necessarily mean attributes. So scholars get a little perplexed. But Joel is a fascinating book for yet more reasons than this. You are in for a treat. We're going to talk about locusts. How many of you have ever eaten a locust? You came that close. Okay. Anybody else? Okay. I've not. Have you really eaten a locust? Both of you. Was it crunchy? Tastes like peanut butter. I always heard it just tastes like chicken. Um, <laughs> the uh, um, <laughs> locust tastes like peanut butter. Yeah. Okay. Well, we run out. We'll have locust and jelly sandwiches. Um, I've never eaten locusts, uh, um, uh, but uh, uh, locusts have done a lot of eating of world's crops. Locusts were not a favored thing, and uh, uh, I, I don't know all the fine niceties of locusts, but I can tell you that in Hebrew, there are nine different words for locusts that are used in the Old Testament. Akkadian, which is another Semitic language nearby, has at least 18 different words for locus. Now, why do they have all these words for locus? The answer in part is because locust was a huge problem to them. They did not live in a day and a civilization where they had ready available insecticides. Um, They did not live in a day and a civilization where they were able to control the elements that well irrigation was very difficult. They would eat, for example, dates from the date palm tree. That was a main source of good food, but do you know a date palm tree has to grow for 20 years before it produces fruit. Those trees get wiped out and you say goodbye to date pie for the rest of your life. You just plant them again and hope they're there for your kids. Life expectancy wasn't huge back then. So you've got now a a civilization where there were locusts that constantly could come up and devour crops. If the locust devoured your crop, you could not go to the refrigerator and pull out your store from last year. You could not trust that the crop would still be good over in Kansas... And the Kansas wheat would just be put on the railroad and shipped over. The communities were very uh, 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 dependent upon the immediate crops that were available right there. So when swarms of locusts would come, it could cause immense devastation. It could end your ability to eat. And what you would do is you would pray that the locusts would pass and not eat all of the food. I read somewhere, um, uh, uh, the, the, and I, I should have put it down, and I, I didn't put it in the reference material, but locusts, they breed like cockroaches. I mean, you, you, ta- you, you know the story of you take two cockroaches and you feed them and ignore them, and you turn around five minutes later and there are a billion? It, it's, it seems that that is the case with locusts as well, and female locusts can lay enough larvae to, to really destroy uh, big areas. So this was a huge, not only problem, but a nightmare that people prayed against and feared. It's interesting when big armies are described in some of the other writings outside of the Bible for uh, cultures and civilizations in that area, some of the Babylonian writings and some of the Assyrian writings, we read about armies being described as locusts. Because they would descend in mass and they would annihilate all of the food. Now one of the perks of being in the army back then when you invaded a country was you got to eat everything that you found. You didn't honor their crops for them. It wasn't thievery. You took over their crops. You ate everything in your path. And like locusts, you just destroyed everything and left the people there to starve afterwards. So locusts were a huge problem. So much so that they have all these multiple different words for locusts. If you've got your Bible and you want to look at Joel chapter 1, verse 4. Let's see. This is an interesting one. The Hebrew here has four different words for locusts in this one verse. And the NIV doesn't have a clue what they mean. Because we're not locust specialists here. We don't know if this is four different kinds of locusts. We don't know if it's, well, that's a reference to four different life stages within the locust. There's the larva, there's the... We don't really know. It's like a lot of the plants talked about in the Bible. We're not sure which exact plants they are as we read through the Bible and try to translate. But the writer here says, What the locust swarm has left, and that locust swarm is one word for locust." It's a plural word for locusts, so they translate it locust swarm. In other words, here come a bunch of locusts, the locusts have annihilated the crops and what the locust swarm or locust type 1 has left, the great locusts have eaten. Well that's just another kind of locust, locust type 2, and the NIV calls it a great locust to try and make it look different than locust swarm, which was locust number 1. And what? so what locust number one had left, locust number two came and ate. And what great locusts have left, what locust number two left, the young locusts have eaten. Well, that's just the third word for locusts. And what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. They ran out of words to translate the locusts. See, if they just translated it straight, it'd say What the locusts have left, the locusts have eaten. What the locusts have left, the locusts have eaten. What the locusts have left, the locusts have eaten. And we would all be be scratching our heads and wondering why we don't hear more sermons out of the minor prophets. Um, Instead, what the NIV does is they put this language in there, and then they drop a footnote. See that little B right there, that italicized B? You go down to the bottom of your NIV and they get honest on you there. They say, uh, B, the precise meaning of the four Hebrew words used here for locust is uncertain. <laughs> See? This is locust number one, locust number two, locust number three, and locust number four. But they had to do something to translate it so we didn't think that it was a typo. So that's what they did. Now, what Joel does then is Joel comes out, see, biblical literacy, things you learn. You can talk about lunch. I'll have the peanut butter. By the way, have you ever eaten locusts? What kind? Um, Yeah. Joel uses this massive influx of locusts to call the people to repentance. Understand, one reason scholars have trouble dating Joel, you would think, well, well, let's just go back and find archaeologically when the big locust swarm was, because they had them all the time. Okay? This was a book that had great prominence with this, because this is a tragedy. This would be like us today, in, in the Gulf Coast region at least, talking about when the tropical storm comes and the rains come, let's use this as a time to fall before the Lord in repentance and realize how dependent we are upon Him because we really have no control over so much of our lives. Hardest lesson for me so far in Dad passing away two weeks ago is that there are things I can't control. I mean, I'm real good at saying that, but ultimately in my life there's a whole lot I can control. But there are some things that I can't fix that I can't control. There are things outside of us, whether it's the weather or the locusts, that we don't have control. And the prophet of God calls us out and says to us, Repent before the Lord. Have a right relationship before God. Let these times be times that remind you of what God wants from you. When you face your locusts in your life, regardless of which number they are, It's a time to fall on your knees before God and just repent of of any sin you've got in your life and make sure your heart's right with him so you can hear his voice and his direction so you can enjoy his comfort and his protection. Okay, does that make sense? That's the way Joel was used and that's why it's hard to date it because it was a common problem for them. Um, If you look at Joel, before we leave Joel, biblical literacy demands that we... Look at another passage. We need to look at, uh, uh, as Joel calls the people to repentance, we have the second part where he starts talking about the outpouring of his spirit. And in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, it says, And afterward, this is when the day of the Lord comes. This is when God comes forward and, and in essence uh, um, provides blessing upon Israel. Um, and afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, uh, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. Does that sound remotely familiar to you? Let's pause for a minute and let's talk about the Holy Spirit. When God made man and woman, He breathed into him The spirit. And they became living beings. Okay? The word for spirit in the Hebrew is the same as the word for wind. Alright? So breath. Spirit. But when man sinned against God in the garden and man died, God's spirit was pulled from man. Because man was unholy and man man was not a, a vessel of God's spirit at the time and in the Old Testament we read that God selectively gave his spirit to different people. King David, God's spirit came upon him. And God would choose people to receive his spirit. The prophets would receive and speak by the Spirit of God. But God's spirit was not poured out on all of the Israelites, on all of God's children, by any stretch of the imagination. It was selectively given. In fact, David even prays in Psalm 51, God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Because David was a special recipient. And what Joel is prophesying here is he's saying things are going to be different. There's going to be a day where I don't choose who I give my spirit to, but all of my people. All of my people are going to receive it. Old men, young men, men, women, servants, owners, masters, slaves. Everyone, no respecter of persons, is going to receive the Holy Spirit of God in that day. That's the prophecy. When did that happen? Pentecost. Let's look. Um, Whoops. Okay, I mean, it's there. Let's uh, see if I can make this a little bit closer. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Jesus Christ comes. Jesus Christ is about to go to the cross. John 14, 15, and 16. Jesus Christ is having his last one on 12 with his apostles. And Jesus says to them, you know, I'm going away. Where I'm going, you can't come, but the process of this is going to prepare a place for you so that where I am there you may be also and I'm, the Father's going to send you another one, a comforter. The Father's going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And the Holy Spirit's going to do all of these things. He's going to remind you of what I've said. He's going to teach you what it really meant. He's going to confirm for you that I'm in the Father, and you're in me, and I'm in you. The Holy Spirit's coming, and the Holy Spirit's going to do these things. You stay in Jerusalem, and you wait for the Holy Spirit... Jesus is crucified. Jesus is resurrected. Jesus is repeating the promise. Stay in Jerusalem. You wait for the Holy Spirit. Jesus goes up to be with God. And on Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, all of the apostles are gathered together. And this is a big festival, so everybody's come into Jerusalem. Jerusalem's a thriving, vibrant city with people from all around. Jews from all different parts of the world who speak all different tongues have all come together to celebrate Pentecost. And when the day of Pentecost came, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house. All of them, all of the apostles, were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. A crowd came together in bewilderment. Some made fun of them and said, "They've had too much wine." Please don't misunderstand this verse. The crowd was not thinking that these people were drunk because the people were speaking in tongues. The tongue speaking in Acts chapter 2, and we'll cover some of this when we get to the New Testament, but for right now it's important. The tongue speaking in Acts chapter 2 was was really more a tongue hearing. It was the, the, the apostles speaking, but everyone heard in their own native tongue what was being said. So it's not the fact that that those who spoke Spanish were hearing it in Spanish. Those who spoke Italian were hearing it in Italian. And those who spoke English were hearing it in English. That's not what made the spectators believe the apostles were drunk. What made the spectators believe the apostles were drunk is what the apostles were saying. The apostles were talking about Jesus Messiah being resurrected from the dead and walking along planet earth. And we saw him and we touched him. That's the hallucination that was making him think, yeah, right, and you had a little too much to drink last night too, on into this morning. And so Peter stands up to him and Peter says, hey, these men are not drunk. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then Peter quotes what we have here. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. And Peter goes on and quotes several more verses that I haven't put up for you. But you see, the prophet Joel said there's going to come a time where God's Spirit will be poured out on all of His people. And as we read through what happens in Acts chapter 2, Peter then tells the people, here is your chance now. You really have killed the Son of God. Understand, the guy that got crucified, the guy you killed, the guy you murdered, wasn't just a nice guy, you murdered God. And it was that message that, as the Holy Spirit pounded at home with those people, caused those people to say, "Uh uh-oh, what should we do now? And that was their question. I mean, that's, that's a good question. You just find out you just killed God. God came to earth to be with you, and you killed him. A really good question at that point in time is, if you believe that happened... What should I do about it? And that's when Peter answers and says, You should repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And there were 3,000 added to the church that day. And the Holy Spirit was working here. So Joel prophesies about a coming day of the Lord when God's going to pour His Holy Spirit out on all of His people. And that's the day we live in. Now the Holy Spirit is not speaking in tongues. The Holy Spirit is manifesting Jesus Christ crucified. And He'll do that in any way He sees fit. Whether it is in speaking in tongues or speaking in hearing or speaking in English or speaking... Uh, uh, in conviction in the heart. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is is clear, and and we'll talk about this in the New Testament. But what Joel was talking about and what happened in Acts has sometimes been distorted by some well-meaning folk to think that, ah, you get the Holy Spirit, you speak in tongues, da-da-da-da. No, this is not a mechanical thing here. This is God saying, I'm pouring out my Spirit on people so they will understand who I am and what I'm doing and what I'm about. And that's what happened. Um, Oops, we just did all of that. Okay, Amos. Spend about 15 minutes on Amos and we'll be done. Amos chapter 7 tells us he was a sheep raiser and a dresser of figs. Now, you probably didn't know figs wore clothes. They don't. That's not the kind of dressing he would do. Uh, There are certain figs that were not the good figs for the rich people. They were the figs for the ordinary people that uh, you got to get ethylene gas in them to get them to ripen evenly. And the way they would do that is they would make a slit in the side of each fig. And uh, they would ripen quickly enough to where the whole fig would be edible instead of half of it being overripe and half of it being underripe. And uh, so so this is what uh, um, Amos did. Amos was a common man. Unlike Isaiah, who uh, seems to have enjoyed the court of the king and and all of the the prestige and perks that went with it, Amos was a fellow out in the field. He was a common laborer. He was an ordinary guy. But he is a man whom the Spirit of the Lord touched and who prophesied. And the words of Amos Amos is one of my favorite books in the entire Bible. Uh, Amos is a book uh, uh, that, that um, it is my prayer that I will live a life sensitive to Amos. Okay. I'll show you why. Amos we know when Amos took place. Amos says it. Amos says that Jeroboam II was king in Uzziah in, in northern Israel, and Uzziah was king in the southern kingdom of Judah. So that lets us in on a time period, a time frame. We know what was going on then. We know that Assyria was starting... I I don't have the maps in here, but we've gone through this so much lately I, I didn't want to be redundant. But if you recall, you've got Judah in the south, you've got Israel in the north, and Damascus, or plain old Syria with an S, is immediately to the north of Israel historically, Israel and Damascus have just fought back and forth. One of them gains, one of them loses. One of them gains, one of them loses. Well, north of Damascus is Assyria. Not Syria with an S, but Assyria, A-S-S-Y. And, and Assyria is starting to become a major power. So Damascus has to quit chomping on Israel and turn Damascus's attention to the north. And all of a sudden, Israel has prosperity. They got a buffer to the south with Judah, They've got a buffer to the north with Damascus fighting off the northern aggression to them. And so this is a time where where Israel really prospered financially. Trade was big. There was a big urbanization as people moved from the country into the city. People, the the conditions were such that uh, a lot of money was to be made. And the way it was done in Israel, the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. It was not a time that was used to boost everyone up. It was a time where the rich and the powerful ran over the poor and the downtrodden. It was a time where the rich and the powerful took their money and used it to put the poor people under their thumb. The middle class disappears in Israel during this time, practically. And the the rich get richer, and the poor get poorer, and the oppression is horrible. The oppression is not only in the marketplace, the the oppression is uh, in the court system. The rich own the courts, the rich get their way in the courts, they bribe the judges, the poor people don't have truth, and they don't have justice. And the poor people cannot stand against the rich and the powerful. Amos, the common man, comes and he lays it on the line. Amos starts out by his prophecy and he utters against six nations that surround Israel. And he says, you six nations, doom is coming your way. Let me tell you why. And what Amos does here is something Paul does later in, in the New Testament. I love his approach. Before he condemns Israel, he, he warms up with these other nations. And I'm sure the people hearing the prophecy at first were, amen! Amen! Amen, preach on, preach on, till all of a sudden he focuses on them, and then they wonder why they were applauding him. He says, damascus, you're going to be condemned because you've been brutal. The philistines, you've traded people like cattle, so you're going to be condemned. The Phoenicians tire, you've broken a treaty you had with Israel and you 've sold some of our people into slavery you're going to be condemned. Edom, you have been persistently violent against us. You're going to be destroyed. Ammon, you've, you've committed genocide. You've taken our pregnant women and you've cut them open in the belly and you've pulled the babies out and left them both there to die. You're going to be destroyed. God's bringing destruction on Moab because of its irreverence toward the dead and towards things that are holy and sacred and clean. And then the prophet says, But as for Judah... You've rejected the law of God and you've moved into idolatry and you're going to be condemned. And as for Israel, you're abusing the poor. You're sexually immoral and you have this false religion that makes me want to puke. That's the attitude. You know, you you do all this in the name. Oh yeah, you will stomp on the poor people and then have the gall to take a tenth of that and give it to the Lord as your tithe. If you look at various pieces of the text, I, I, I want, um, well, I'll tell you what, I'll leave them up here. I'm going to read them to you in the interest of time instead of show them to you. But I want you to hear what these say. Uh, read them along in your Bible if you'd like. Um, I'm going to start even before this. I'm going to start Amos chapter 2. The sins of Israel, verse 6 they sell the righteous for silver. They sell the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor. They deny justice to the oppressed. You go to um, um, chapter four. Well, let's go ahead and put it up. I can't pass up this. Hear this word, you cows of Vation. That's what he's calling the um, the uh, wealthy upper class women. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, Bring us something to drink. Husbands, your wife ever says to you, Would you bring me something to drink? Do you have a scriptural basis? Under your breath to mutter, Sure, cow Bashan. (laughs) Um... Then y'all can make your appointment and come see Lewis. <laughs> and he'll fix this lesson. The sovereign Lord has sworn by His holiness the time will surely come when you'll be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You cows of Bashan that think you're this wonderful thing just strutting your stuff, you're going to go out as a fish at the end of a hook. Smelly, slimy, and stinky. Okay. Go to Bethel. And sin. Bethel's where Israel had um, idols set up because they didn't want to worship at Jerusalem because that was part of Judah. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Footnote says every three days. Probably a better translation. Bring your leavened bread as a thank offering. Brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them. This is what you love to do. Just brag about how wonderful all these things are. You're given to the Lord. While you oppress the needy. Look what they did to the court system. I'm in chapter 5 here. Um, you turn justice into bitterness. You cast righteousness to the ground. Look at this. You trample... Where is it? You trample on the poor, and you force the poor to give you grain. Therefore, though you've built stone mansions, you're not going to live in them. Planted lush vineyards, you won't drink the wine. I know how many of your offenses ingrates your sin. You oppress the righteous, you take bribes, and you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. The courts are where the poor are supposed to have a fair shot. And you're taking away the rights of the poor to enrich the wealthy. Look at the bogus religion. I hate... I despise your religious feasts. I can't stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I'll have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I'm not listening to the music of your harps. Let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. God's not interested in us coming to church and having church and singing these wonderful songs and then going out and stomping on the little people. God's not interested in us bringing the little people into church, being nice, being friendly, and then going out and stomping on them. God's interested in us being fair and just. And seeing to the rights of the poor and the needy and the oppressed and helping the, those that don't have help. I've been asked before, gee, Mark, do you believe government should be giving handouts to the world? Well, I don't know how I land on all of that stuff, but I will tell you one thing. I believe in the church doing it. I believe in I loved One of my favorite things DeMond's ever done is when he had us bring our shoes up because people needed shoes, and he found out about it and said, I can fix that this Sunday. didn't warn us to bring our bad shoes. (laughs) Demond's a holy man. He led us right as our pastor. See, this is what God's interested in. I've heard it said God helps those who help themselves. I want to tell you something I've learned in my 43 years. God helps the helpless and leaves the rest to help themselves. If you don't need the Lord, He's not going to spend His time with you. But there are people who need Him. There are people who need something to eat. There are people who need fairness. There are people who need justice. There are people who need nurture. There are people who need care. There are people who need a job to help them with their families. There are people who need help finding a job. There are people who don't just... Give them a fish so they can eat for a day. Teach them how to fish so they can eat for their lifetime. They need us involved in their lives. They need us to be about more than enriching our bank accounts. They need us to be about trying to minister to their needs. And that's the love of God, and that's the love of Jesus Christ. And that was absolutely, totally missing from this country. At this time in history, and God says, I'm just gonna give you over. I am gonna give you over. And one of the king's men came to Amos and said, Amos, you shouldn't be talking like this. This is like treason. You know, this is not good stuff. And Amos had a response for him. Amos said, Okay, you say to me, don't prophesy against Israel and stop preaching against the house of Isaac. Here's what the Lord says in response. Number one, your wife's going to become a prostitute in the city. Number two, your sons and daughters are going to fall by the sword. Number three, your property's going to be measured and divided up. And number four, you're going to die in a pagan country and all of Israel's going into exile. How's that? You know and and I'm going to end it with this this passage here and then we'll talk about lessons for the day. Amos chapter eight. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, um, "When will the new moon be over so we can sell grain?" <laughs> How much longer is we got to have this stupid Sabbath thing? You know, when will the Sabbath be ended so we can start selling and market our wheat? Skimping the measure. Yeah, that's a pound of wheat when it's not. <coughs> Boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales. Buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Selling even the sweepings. With the wheat. it almost brings tears to my eyes. Um, I've got a good friend named Terry Lowry who told me, he said, Mark, um, many of us have been taught to hate trial lawyers because y'all are greedy. And there are greedy trial lawyers, worth hating maybe. Are praying for. But I want to tell you one thing that we have to be proud of in America. Ideally, we have a court system where jurors of 12 people get to decide what's right and what's wrong. That's an incredibly powerful thing we have in this country. Because it's really hard to buy off 12 people. We live in a land where we've got so many blessings like that, yet the risk is ever bit as much for us as it was in the time of Amos. Because we also live in a land of opportunity where we are taught to, to really try and build our bank accounts and our financial statements. We're taught to accumulate first and give late. And I don't want to be that way. I don't want to be that way. As a lawyer, I want to see our courts be a place of justice. Where it doesn't matter how much money you have, you get a fair day and you get a fair hearing. And if you've been wronged, justice comes to you. And as a a consumer, I, I don't want to be someone who pulls up to the street corner where you see the guy saying, you know, I'll work for food or something, or please, can I have a dollar to eat? God bless you. Um, I don't want to roll down my window and say, hey, buddy, bring me a dollar. I, I don't have big answers to a lot of these. You know, I can't sit here and give you a categorical rule that says every time you see someone at the street corner, you give them money. But I can tell you this. We need to be sensitive in our hearts to what God's trying to do, because God wants people to eat, and He wants people to have opportunity, and He wants people to have fairness, and right now on planet Earth, we are His hands, and we are His feet, and we are His voice, and we are the body of Christ. And so when He wants to do these things, we're the natural vessel for Him to do it through. And I don't know where you, you come on this, and, and, and I don't know how it works in your family unit, But we need to be teaching our children, we need to be encouraging each other to find opportunities to help people beyond merely praying for them. Because that's what we should be about. That's the love that God has for them, and that's the love we need to show them. And it's a strong lesson we get from Amos. Points for home. Walk in the Spirit. God's Spirit is here for those who believe and put their trust in Jesus. We need to take that Spirit and walk in it. Be fair with people. Don't cheat people. Don't cheat people and call it good business. Don't. Be fair. Um, When you deal with people in business, when you deal with people in the streets when you go to the grocery store and the lady accidentally gives you the wrong change and you get an extra dollar, don't take it. Even if no one's looking and it'll never matter at all, do right. Be fair. Don't cheat people. Treat other people with love. Don't seek out those that have a lot of of power or prestige or money or influence and treat them with love and then go find everybody else and ignore them? That's not right. Go find everybody and treat everybody with love. Let your heart go out to them. Be compassionate toward them. Seek for ways to serve people who could never pay you back for the service. Seek for ways to bless people who can never pay you back for the blessing. Remember the golden rule. Treat other people the way you would like to be treated if you were in their shoes. Let our knowledge of God elevate our concern for others. Please. I want you to pray with me in conclusion. Remember next Sunday is Joel Chernoff. He's got some great songs he's going to sing. Um, I urge you to bring anybody you know. Uh, If you know anybody who's Jewish, bring them. It's just always kind of fun to have a Jewish guy up here who's also a Christian singing. And so there's a a fascination that that stirs in in Jews. Okay, pray with me. Lord, um, I thank you so much for a, a very harsh but a very important message in Amos. And Lord, I confess to you that, that uh, all of us have so many blessings when compared to the rest of the world. And some of us, when compared to each other, have so many blessings of, of a physical, earthly nature. Lord, would you please put into each of us an awareness that everything good in our lives is not really ours, but is yours. And when you stir up within us a strong recognition That we should recognize that, that, that we are taking care of your treasures and your valuables and your goods, not our own. And help us to dispense and to help people in need. Put in us a heart for the poor and a heart for the oppressed and a heart for the needy. And let us seek to help them in all ways we can in our lives under your oversight. Lord, may your spirit lead and guide us. In loving them as Christ would love them. Does love them. As you love them. Thank you so much for this class, Lord. And all these people in here. Pray you will bless us and keep us safe. Bring us back together next week, Lord. In Jesus we pray, amen.